Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Harbin here with you. There's a couple of things that I wanted to just lay on the table and have a conversation with you about my protracted rant about my opinion and my reading, as it were, my research, my learning, (laughs) whatever, on where we're at, what happened, what has happened in the last 24 hours in particular. But I want to share this with you in a fairly unvarnished fashion and love to get your thoughts on it. First of all, if you go back to the, the invasion of Iraq, both invasions of Iraq, in fact. You know, we invaded and we invaded Iraq back in, I think it was 91, when George Herbert Walker Bush was president. And that was going to get him reelected in 92. It didn't work out that well. As his son pointed out, his war only lasted 100 hours. He should have been at war all the way up to Election Day if he wanted to get himself reelected. This is what George W. Bush said. In fact, Cindy Sheehan laid this out you know, I think fairly brilliantly. And just as a reminder. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend, Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, one of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander in chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. So that was George W. Bush pointing out that there's a strategy here. Republicans have been doing this since Reagan and Grenada. Have a little war, and, you know, you get reelected. And so we have to remember that this is the starting point. But back to the first and second invasions of Iraq in 91 and in 2003. In both cases, Saddam Hussein was throwing Scud missiles at us. Remember that? We were watching Scud missiles on CNN. Oh, look at there goes another one. And one of the things that we were watching was our surface-to-air anti-missile missiles taking them out of the sky. I mean, there's the Israeli Iron Dome is the most famous one, but there's all these anti-missile technologies. We've sold some to Ukraine. We've sold, we've, we sell them all over the world. 
So why did we let 16 or 12 or whatever it was, we, we still don't have final numbers yet, why did we let a dozen or so missiles fired from inside Iran, where we knew they were coming, we knew broadly something was going to happen, and I guarantee you the instant those things left the launch pad in Iran, and it was, you know, at least a minute or two to get to wherever they got to, as soon as they were launched, our satellites and our our high-altitude uh, drone surveillance uh, equipment, whether it's the modern version of U-2s or what, you know, it's a, AWACS planes, we could see the heat signature. We could immediately calculate the trajectory. We knew where these missiles were going. We knew how long it was going to take to get there. On top of that, well, let me just pause that right there. So why didn't we shoot them out of the sky? What we saw was very well choreographed, very elegant kabuki theater. Right, this was a dance that was done between Iran, Iraq, and the United States. Trump kills Soleimani. The entire world just backs away. He was half expecting, I believe he was expecting that the allies would come in and say, oh yeah, just like with George Bush, we'll fight against the Iranians with you. And no. You know, the rest of the world, even Boris Johnson is like, after his initial statement that Israel stands with the United States, immediately we were hearing out of the prime minister's office and Netanyahu's office, well, this is Trump's attack. This is not Israel's attack. This is Trump's attack. So why didn't we shoot down those missiles? Because at that point, the U.S. military, now I don't know if Trump figured this out, but certainly the Pentagon had and maybe Pompeo had, that we've got no allies anymore. Trump has just pissed away our allies. He's destroyed our alliances. And this is go it alone. I mean, nobody was willing to sign up for World War III. So what got said to Trump was, in my opinion, probably by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, maybe by that Marine Corps general who wrote the letter to Iraq saying, okay, we'll pull out. I believe it was General Milley, as I recall. Basically, somebody said to Trump, okay, here's the deal. You blew it when you assassinated Soleimani. That was stupid. You're going to have to pay a price for that. We're going to make it look like, you know, we're going to make it happen in a way that you can save face. Iran is going to fire some missiles, and they're not going to hit anything. They're not going to hurt anybody. We're going to have plenty of advance notice. And Iran is going to fire these missiles, and we're going to put all of our soldiers in safe places so that, you know, nothing happens. We're going to hold our breath. And this is going to let the Ayatollah and President Rouhani, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, it's going to allow them to say to the Iranian people, see, we fought back. And in fact, they're claiming that, you know, they killed 30 or 40 U.S. soldiers and wounded another 70 or 80. You know, the Iranian press has made various claims, but they're all kind of in that neighborhood. So, which would be like a proportionate response, because when Trump killed Soleimani, he didn't just kill him. He also killed the head of the Shiite paramilitary forces in Iraq that are sanctioned by the government of Iraq. In other words, that are, the government of Iraq is okay with. And he killed, you know, half a dozen other people who were traveling with him in their convoys. So this was designed to let the leadership of Iran save face 
and to let Donald Trump save face and to de-escalate it. And I can virtually guarantee you that did not come from Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, or Donald Trump. In all probability, that came from Mr. Esper, our Secretary of Defense, or from the Joint Chiefs, or from the President of Iraq, or, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all from President Rouhani of Iran, who's actually a fairly moderate guy in, you know, for the region. So that's kind of a, oh, yeah, all right. So now I understand why, you know, there were no missiles shooting missiles out of the air, because, you know, if they shot a bunch of missiles at us and we blew up their missiles before they hit the ground, then the Iranian people would be saying, whoa, wait a minute, we want to strike somebody. And they'd have to do it all over again. So we let it happen. Now, that all sounds like really great news, right? Smart people got together and figured out a way to fix Trump's screw-up. But there's still a few loose ends, and these are really important loose ends. The first is Donald Trump assassinated Soleimani illegally. The War Powers Act and even the authorization to use military force, the AUMF after 9-11, specify that if he is going to, that if the President of the United States is going to engage in military action against a, a representative or member of a foreign government, they first have to obtain the approval of Congress or at least notify Congress. First, Trump did not do that. And secondly, if they do it without notifying Congress, the one loophole in both of those laws that allows the president to just, like, pull the trigger is if there's imminence. In other words, it's going to happen at any minute. There's going to there's be major destruction to U.S. facilities and, or U.S. persons, and so the president has to act to protect U.S. interests. Doesn't have time to talk to Congress. And that was the original claim that Mike Pompeo made. And he obviously lied because he walked it back. So now it's like from the American point of view, I want to know what the damn intelligence was. Mark Pocan said he went into the skiff, the secure area, and he read the two-page report that the Trump administration provided to Congress saying, here's why we had to strike, when we had to strike. And he suggested, I don't want to quote him, I don't have his exact words in front of me, and I don't want to get him in trouble because you can't reveal classified information. But what he did say was that he saw nothing in that report that suggested that there was an imminent attack coming, which means that Trump broke the law. And we've seen other members of Congress who went into the skiff and read this who are now openly calling for that to be declassified. And so that the American people can all, we can all see that what Trump did was illegal, in addition to stupid. Number one, that's loose thread number one. And I could see that even turning into an article of impeachment. And loose thread number two is that Soleimani, he was a brilliant tactician. This, what this guy did over the course of 20 years is, you know, Iran, big country, eighth largest military in the world, but one of the most effective ways to build, you know, to have military power in a region like the Middle East instead of having all kinds of weapons and armies, is you have proxies. They funded Hezbollah in Lebanon, fragments of it in Israel. They've got their people in Yemen. They've got their people in Syria. They've got their people in Iraq. 
and Soleimani was controlling all these groups. And he could turn them into a, he could weaponize them. Well, the question now is, without him there, he had the power to release them, to unleash them. He also had the power to constrain them. Without him there any longer, does his number two have the kind of personal, moral, political, knows where the bodies are buried, whatever it takes, authority to prevent the groups that Soleimani put together all across the Middle East from over the course of the next few days or weeks or months or even year, initiating all kinds of non, you know, asymmetrical, non-normal attacks against American interests. And I guess the third question would be, you know, was the threat against Trump's property something that caused him to change? This is the Tom Hartman Program. So there's a lot there. I'll share a little bit more with that on the other side of the break, and we'll pick up your calls. A lot going on here. Stick around. Eddie in Agra, Kansas, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Eddie, what's up? Uh, well, I wondered, uh, I thought all along since this happened that this was just a dance between the two things to rally the Iranians and to, but especially, see, I, uh, I wonder if you don't think that this is a, a thing for Trump to stay in power and to dodge impeachment. Well, if he can avoid it becoming obvious that his action taking out Soleimani in the first place was stupid. If Trump can avoid that, if he can, you know, right now, I think the last poll I saw, which was last night, was that 47% of Americans think it was a good thing to take this guy out, okay? So if he can get that number up to 50 or 60 or 70%, then Trump wins from this. And Ayatollah Khomeini and President Rouhani, if they can keep the Iranian people convinced that they actually did, you know, kick us in the in the shins or draw some blood, punch us in the nose and draw some blood. They will come out of this stronger and it will have been a good PR effort on both sides and the price will have been fairly low uh, outside of the death of Soleimani, which was apparently a, a body blow to Iran. Am I answering your question, Eddie? Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. I did, would like if you give me a chance to throw out two more things. One, uh, isn't it interesting how the Republicans have shifted their stance from uh, supporting rights and morals and being the party of that helped the people? You know, didn't all this start when they stopped enforcing the laws against big companies? You know, we had the broke Oh, the down Sherman the, uh, Antitrust Act. Companies. Yeah, when Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act in 1982, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. When yeah. all of a sudden there's no laws to, to stop the big farms, the big government, and all of a sudden... We started making the ultra-rich richer, you know, so that Donald Trump could be the, you know, super billionaire. And then all of yeah. a sudden, the Republicans, they start talking about, oh, it's all about how rich, you know, everybody is. And they don't care about the middle class and the poor. Yeah. And that goes back to the Supreme Court as well. You know, back in the 70s, Robert Bork was promoting this idea that when the antitrust laws were written, the goal of them was to keep prices low for consumers, which of course is complete BS. It was not the case at all. The goal of the antitrust laws was to protect communities, to protect small businesses, to protect local business, to protect employees, to protect customers, to protect the institution of the company itself, to protect the shareholders, and to protect consumers. But Bork started selling this thing, and in somewhere in the mid-70s, I think it was 74 or 77, it's 
It's in a book that I've got that will be coming out this fall. The Supreme Court, in a case called GTE Sylvania, adopted Robert Bork's theory and combined that with uh, Reagan saying he wasn't going to enforce the Sherman Act anymore. And that was the, basically the end of representative democracy in the United States of an economic system that benefited average working people. And that led us right into the 80s, right into trickle-down economics, right into Reaganomics, where the only people who do well, and uh, you know, their pay is up over 300% you know, since 1980, are the top 1%. And everybody else, their pay has gone down and they're everything. So yeah, you've identified it, Eddie. Eddie, thanks a lot for the call. We'll be right back here on the Tom Hartman Program, occupying the media right here. Stick around. Twenty twenty, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than one hundred of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHarbin.com, and it's about the state representative, Timothy Gintner, in Ohio, who has proposed legislation and actually passed the House of Representatives in Ohio, HB 164. It's now going to the Senate, where there are 33 senators, nine of them Democrats. This legislation, if you were to ask a student, say you're a science teacher, and you were to ask a student the question like, does the sun rotate around the earth? Is the earth the center of the universe? And the student said yes, you would have to grade the answer as correct because the student might belong to some cult that believes that the earth is at the center of the universe. Seriously. Religion trumps science in the classroom. It is getting so weird out there. Anyhow, you can check out the whole, all the details of it in our little video over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So I basically shared that riff with you and obviously what happened is that Iran notified Iraq that they were going to strike in these two locations at this specific time. Iraq notified us. We moved all our soldiers into safety and we did not launch a defensive anti-ballistic missile shield. We did not, we did not put planes in the air. You know, specific to this, we didn't put missiles in the air. We didn't have, uh, you know, anti-missile batteries. None of that. Because we knew in advance that this was just going to be a dance. And Trump is out now saying, oh, and we're going to have new sanctions on Iraq. We'll see. I'm wondering if he has 
you know, or at least his advisors around him have, have now that they've danced up to the edge, did they have their Cuban missile moment? Did they have their staring into the abyss moment? If so, you know, might be a good thing. Might be that they're chastened. Might be that they're, you know, that Trump and, and Pompeo and Pence and these guys are starting to think, you know, maybe there's something to that uh, strategy that President Obama had of keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Let's bring in Iran. Let's work together with them, with the JCPOA. But then, you know, in his speech, he can't help but attack President Obama because, oh my God, how dare a black guy be president of the United States and do something good? In my opinion, that is what is animating at least 90% of Donald Trump's animus against Obama because he doesn't pick on other presidents. He doesn't say, well, Clinton did this or, you know, Bush did that. You know, he, he doesn't even pick on other Democratic presidents. It's all Obama. He spent eight years claiming that Obama wasn't entitled to be president because, you know, it's not possible that a black guy could just get there on his own two feet, on his own competence, on his own brilliance. There must have been an international conspiracy to take a little baby born in Kenya and move him to Hawaii so that he could someday become president. So anyway, I, you know, we'll see. But on the other hand, what is going to happen if the people who are still loyal to Soleimani, the guys that he trained, the guys that he led, I mean, he was the, George Washington's probably too strong a thing, but, but the, throughout the military and throughout the paramilitaries associated with Iran, his name was really, really well known. And will the government of Iran be able to restrain those guys? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Today we're reading from Martha Nussbaum's new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. This is from the introduction. There's a lot of fear around in the U.S. today, and this fear is often mingled with anger, blame, and envy. Fear all too often blocks rational deliberation, poisons hope, and impedes constructive cooperation for a better future. What is today's fear about? Well, many Americans feel themselves powerless out of control of their own lives. They fear that the American dream, the hope that our children will flourish and do even better than you have done, has died and that everything has slipped away from them. These feelings have their basis in real problems. Among others, income stagnation in the lower middle class, alarming declines in the health and longevity of members of this group, especially men, and the escalating costs of higher education at the very time that a college degree is increasingly required for employment. But real problems are difficult to solve, and their solutions take long, hard study and cooperative work toward an uncertain future. It can consequently seem all too attractive to convert that sense of panic and impotence into blame and the othering of outsider groups such as immigrants, racial minorities, and women. They have taken our jobs, or wealthy elites have stolen our country. The problems that globalization and automation create for working class Americans are real, deep, and seemingly intractable. Rather than face those difficulties and uncertainties, people who sense their standard of living declining can instead grasp after villains, and a fantasy takes shape. 
if we can somehow keep them out, build a wall, or keep them in their place in subservient positions, we can regain our pride and, for men, their masculinity. Fear leads then to aggressive othering strategies rather than to useful analysis. At the same time, fear also runs rampant among people on the left who seek greater social and economic equality and the vigorous protection of hard-won rights for women and minorities. Many people who are dismayed by the election are reacting to it as if the end of the world is at hand. A majority of my students, many acquaintances, many colleagues feel and say often with anguish that our democracy is on the verge of collapse, that the new administration is unprecedented in its willingness to cater to racism, misogyny, and homophobia. They fear especially for the possible collapse of democratic freedoms, speech, travel, association, the press. My younger students especially think that the America they know and love is about to disappear. Rather than analyze matters soberly and listen to other people trying to sort things through, they often demonize an entire half of the American electorate, portraying them as monsters, enemies of everything good. As in the book of Revelation, these are the last days when a righteous remnant must contend against satanic forces. We all need first to take a deep breath and recall our history. When I was a little girl, African Americans were being lynched in the South. Communists were losing their jobs. Women were just barely beginning to enter prestigious universities in the workforce, and sexual harassment was a ubiquitous offense that had no laws to deter it. Jews could not win partnerships in major law firms. Gays and lesbians, criminals under law, were almost always in the closet. People with disabilities had no rights in public space and public education. Transgender was a category that had as yet no name. America was far from beautiful. These facts tell us two things my students need to know. First, the America for which they are nostalgic never existed, not fully. It was a work in progress, a set of dynamic aspirations put in motion by tough work, cooperation, hope, and solidarity over a long period of time. A just and inclusive America never was, and is not yet a fully achieved reality. Second, this present moment may look like backsliding from our march toward human equality, but it's not the apocalypse, and it's actually a time when hope and work can accomplish a great deal of good. On both left and right, panic doesn't just exaggerate our dangers, it also makes our moment much more dangerous than it would otherwise be, more likely to lead to genuine disasters. It's like a bad marriage in which fear, suspicion, and blame displace careful thought about what the real problems are and how to resolve them. Instead, those emotions taking over become their own problem and prevent constructive work, hope, listening, and cooperation. When people are afraid of one another and of an unknown future, fear easily gives rise to scapegoating, to fantasies of payback, and to a poisonous envy of the fortunate, whether those victorious in the election or those dominant socially and economically. We all remember FDR's statement that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We recently heard departing President Obama say, democracy can buggle when we give in to fear. Roosevelt was wrong if we take his words literally. Although we had reason to fear fear, we certainly had many other things to fear in his time, such as Nazism, hunger, and social conflict. Fear of those evils was rational, and to that extent we should not fear our fear, though we should always examine it. But Obama's more precise and modest statement is surely right. Giving way to fear, which means drifting with its currents, refusing skeptical examination, is surely dangerous. We need to think hard about fear and where fear is leading us. After taking a deep breath, we all need to understand ourselves as well as we can, using that moment of detachment to figure out where fear and related emotions come from 
and where they are leading us. The Monarchy of Fear by Martha Nussbaum. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Joe in Cupertino, California. Hey, Joe, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Great show, Tom. I was sitting in a room in a little hotel about 30 years ago listening to General Singlob describe what you were talking about with Jimmy Carter. And so I really appreciate the historical thing here. But my question is, I think it was last week, Friday, you had a caller come in and mention that he was concerned about Bolton, John Bolton's not mm. wanting to testify. But uh, he had brought this up, and it was the last minute that got me thinking all weekend about what was going on. And, of course, you saw the events over the last three days. Now, all of a sudden, Bolton wants to uh, was willing to testify in front of the Senate. Now, this New World Order, or I should say these people that are waiting for the rapture, of which I think Bolton is probably the leading figure in this, uh, would he be a detriment to, to testify? I, I'd rather hear from Mulvaney about the impeachment inquiry or Baby Perry. I don't have any confidence in Pompeo, but there are papers involved here. It's sticking to the issue. I'm reading a book called The Explosive Child. Every time something happens, we try to redirect everybody's attention to what we're supposed to be looking at. And so that's what this is. It's as plain as the nose on your face. I just think that we have, like, we have to put the leash on this guy before he has already committed what he was afraid he was going to commit. So it's, it's in, in front of our eyes. I wonder if you had any opinion on what you think Bolton's role could be in this. Well, Bolton, according to Fiona Hill's testimony before the House of Representatives under oath, John Bolton was opposed to Trump's holding up the military aid to Ukraine. He called what Perry and Sondland, I guess, and yeah, there was one other person. Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. Taylor, Mr. yeah, Mr. yeah, and Bill Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, what this whole scheme that they had hatched, he called it a drug deal, and he was he was opposed to it. And he told Fiona Hill to go talk to the lawyers once she learned about it. And somebody else testified to that effect as well. So I'm guessing that probably John Bolton's testimony will hurt Trump and would be a good thing for that whole process. Sam in Middleburg, Florida. Hey, Sam, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how are you? Good. I've heard you say a few times that, you know, and even back when uh, Saddam Hussein was in charge and we invaded Iraq, that, you know, and you've played the Dick Cheney things where he talks about splitting up the oil fields in Iraq to get right. to the various oil companies. But I think, I think he was trying to lead us on the wrong track with that. I think it's really that we weren't going in there to get the oil. We, we went in there to keep the oil off of the market. And I think that's what they're doing with... Uh, but that wasn't Iran the effect. Too. The oil is on the market right now. Not well, not Iraq's oil, not all of it. Well, a good chunk of it is. They yeah, they they, they did exactly what Cheney had planned back in March of two thousand one when he was the head of the Energy Task Force. Um, you know, they but wasn't they, their production hundreds of you know I mean you know like twenty million barrels a day, and then it was all the way down to like five. No, what, what, what happened was before we invaded Iraq, most of Iraq's oil fields were not developed. That was Cheney's whole point. This was virgin oil. This was really cheap oil. This was oil that would bubble out of the ground. You know, the first couple of years of a new oil field, it costs just a few dollars a barrel to get that oil out because you don't have to pump it out under pressure. It just comes up under its own pressure or with very little pressure, you could pull it up. As the fields drain, like Saudi Arabia's have, you've got to pull that oil up 
farther and farther and farther from deeper and deeper in the ground. That requires more energy. So recovering Saudi oil right now is $20, $30 a barrel is the cost of production. Iraqi oil right now is being produced at two, three, four, five dollars a barrel because these are new oil fields. There were some existing oil fields, but most of them, and if you look at those maps that Cheney came up with in March of 2001, most of them were areas where there had been never had never been any drilling before. But they had done the uh, the soundings, they had done the the exploratory stuff, and they knew how much oil was there, and that's why Cheney was saying this is the second largest source of oil in the world. Ten okay. percent of the world's oil I supply. I just thought I I just thought I'd read they had taking more oil out before we went in than after we went in. Well, there might have been an interruption of oil supplies, but at that point in time, Iraq was not a major supplier of world oil. Now they are. Sam, thanks a lot for the call. We'll be back. Meanwhile, there's another story that we haven't discussed today that I think is huge and has been largely pushed off our television, which is the uh, apocalyptic fires that are happening in Australia right now. I mean, this is just more than a billion animals killed in Australian wildfires is a very conservative estimate. Chris Dix Dickman was, is a University of Sydney ecologist. He was the one who a week or so ago had said nearly 500 million animals were dead in Australia. But that was based on mammals, birds, and reptiles. The figure, he says, is now a little bit out of date. It's over 800 million given the extent of the fires. And when animals such as bats, frogs, and invertebrates are included in the total, he says, without any doubt, the death toll has exceeded a billion. It's like you would expect the, the force to be shuddering, you know, that we would all feel the death of a billion sentient beings. And meanwhile, Scott Morrison, the prime minister of Australia, is continuing to deny climate change and continuing to take big bucks from the coal industry there, who, you know, largely financed his campaign and for that matter, financed his party. The Liberal Party. Now, keep in mind, liberal in Europe and Australia means what we call conservative here, um, owned by big corporations. But this is a real come-to-Jesus moment for Australia. And this could be the, you know, the end of the Morrison administration. And it might be the end of King Cole in Australia. Or maybe not. I'm going to have to reach out to some of my Australian friends and see what they think about this. Finally, before we hit a break here, I wanted to share with you the fundraising. In fact, uh, Rob Call wrote a piece about this for his, his newsletter or his website, opednews.com. Uh, it's titled, Trump Annual Fundraising Bombs Compared to Democrats. The media was all pointing out, hey, Donald Trump for the end of year, right? We just got the numbers a little bit, you know, a couple days ago. Donald Trump raised $143.8 million. And everybody's like, whoa, that's more than anybody else. Bernie Sanders raised $108 million. Donald Trump, $143. Elizabeth Warren raised $81 million. Joe Biden raised $60 million for the whole entire year. Donald Trump raised $143. And everybody's like, boy, that Donald Trump, he's a fundraising machine. Wait a minute. If you add together what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren raised, $108.9 million and $81.5 million, you've got, you've got $190 million that was raised by the two progressives compared to Donald Trump's $143 million. If you add all the Democrats, you've got about $500 million that was raised by the Democrats in aggregate, and Donald Trump raised $143 million. 
it looks to me, I, I think this is actually very good news. And I think Rob is absolutely right on this over at Op-Ed News, that uh, this is a disaster for Trump, this fundraising. And, you know, I get, you know, the polls and all this kind of stuff. And the media is never going to give us a straight story about what's actually happening politically because they love a horse race. I mean, it's just so much more profitable to have a horse race. You have everybody nearly 50-50. So somebody goes down, you pick them back up again. Come on, we got to have a horse race here. We've got to have suspense. That sells advertising. This is the Tom Hartman Program. But that said, I'm increasingly thinking there's no way Donald Trump is going to get reelected. We'll see. I used to think, uh, it's a new year, it's a new me. Uh, really, it's a new year, it's, there's new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older, and now that's all changed. Thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum, it's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Simply put, this powerful serum... Simply apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within minutes, voila, a new, younger you. And the best part? No surgery or Botox. It's all natural. I'm blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it, all, and it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right. Half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Mitch McConnell is reporting, or actually the Washington Post is reporting, that two people around Mitch McConnell are reporting that McConnell told Republican senators in a closed-door lunch that he now has 51 votes to begin the trial of Donald Trump without any witnesses. And that he's, he's going to go ahead and do this, and we'll see where that goes. <laughs> it's it's uh, incredible. Chris Murphy says... Uh, Pelosi should go ahead and send the articles, since it appears McConnell is going to hold the, hold the Republican Party in line. Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, says Pelosi has to make a decision based on her own judgment, but my Republican colleagues will be, in effect, aiding and abetting a cover-up. Adam Schiff is saying that uh, he may still call John, John Bolton to testify before the Intelligence Committee in the House of Representatives. Elizabeth Warren says to Donald Trump, you know, if you have a defense, if you actually have a defense, if there, if there is some reason why we should be, you know, taking you seriously, if you want to defend yourself, cool. Come on in, make a defense. Bring some witnesses, show some documents. But, you know, there's... Just like in the House. I mean, they literally did not have a single document. All they had was Jim Jordan, you know, Gymnasium Jordan screaming. Anyhow, back to your calls. Chloe in uh, California. Is it Chloe or Chloe in California? Actually, it's Chloe, but I'm Hi, a now resident of Washington State. Oh, cool. Okay. I'll make a note. Yeah. So I listen to you all the time. You are uh, really needed, a voice that's really needed, and I appreciate you so much. Thank you. 
What I want to say is that um, I think Congress should immediately remove this president from office before it can do more harm and make use of Article 25. I think this action will make it clear to the world that the people of the United States do not support this president's actions. Yeah, the 25th Amendment, though, requires that the removal of the president Mm -hmm. be initiated by the vice president and the cabinet. Oh, Lord have mercy. Okay, It's not something Congress can do. The only way that Congress can remove him is through the impeachment process. And that's what's going forward. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's going to be a crapshoot. But Mitch McConnell has said he's going to rig the game. And uh, Lindsey Graham and others have said that's just fine with them. So so Mm -hmm. we'll see. Well, Uh, Annette, uh, real briefly, um, I think that Nancy Pelosi should just hold her ground and let the Senate look stupid. I'm inclined to agree, but I am not the tactician that Nancy Pelosi is. She's been doing this you yeah. know, for you know, half as long as I've been alive, and she's very, very good at it. So I'm, I'm just going to trust her to do what's the best thing. Chloe, thank you for the call. Yeah, Great to hear from you. Astrid in uh, Knox County, Tennessee. Hey, Astrid, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm with Chloe. It's too bad it's not going to work. Yeah. But I sense what we are watching is another quid pro quo unfolding. Bolton will finally agree to testify to clear Trump in exchange for his guarantee of his long-desired war with Iran, right? I, I think it's actually simpler than that. I mean, it's possible that Bolton is going to testify and he's going to throw a curveball. You know, like Sondland apparently lied when he said that Trump said no quid pro quo, you know, and all that kind of stuff, because people who were listening to the call said, no, that's, that's not exactly what we said. But... My guess is that John Bolton is writing a book right now. And, I mean, we know that, right? That's a fact. He's writing a book, and he wants to reveal what happened in the White House. Well, the White House has to vet the book. He cannot, his publisher cannot bring that book to market unless the White House says, oh, yeah, what John Bolton wrote here is just fine with us. Except if that information, if his testimony, if his words are in the public domain. So if John Bolton testifies before Congress and testifies to what's in his book, essentially, you know, says the same words that he's writing in his book, then he doesn't need the approval of the White House to publish his book and get his million or two million or three million dollar advance from a big publisher. So not only does it help him sell the book, but it actually gives him the ability to sell the book. Because right now, I can't imagine that the White House is going to, you know, I mean, you'll you'll recall when John Bolton quit, you know, him and Donald Trump got in a pissing match there on Twitter about whether he was fired or not. Um, So, you know, I don't think that uh, Trump is going to say, oh, yeah, sure, you know, put stuff in your book that makes me look like an idiot. So does that make sense? Well, I need to think about it. But I want to say this. This is another issue I have. Higher education in this country has been taking money from these very wealthy people who want to guide things one way that never serve the rest of us. Oh, sure. I mean, the Koch brothers, big funders. I have to say, you know, this has got to stop. And, you know, Pompeo is is, a, a, please, people, look at this man, West Point. Yeah. He was at the top of his class. Yeah, you would think he's a smart guy, but smart doesn't mean wise. Uh, Astrid, thank you for the call. Mike in Chicago. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? Trump is doing exactly what Putin has told him to do. Yeah. 
And you, you think Putin not- is whispering to Trump to basically do something? He's, he's probably telling Trump he'll be a great hero if he does it, but basically to do something that'll provoke a war before the, between the United States and Iran and further bleed the U.S. Treasury. Is that your point? It's not going to. He's not going to actually do the war. He's going to get right up to it and not do it because Trump and because Putin doesn't want that war. He just wants to control the area. And when Lavrov came in the last time and had that closed door meeting, that is when all this jumped off. And I would also like to say, closing, Syria, the incident in Syria is connected to this. You're talking about Trump pulling out and abandoning the Kurds? That is connected to this because it was all arranged by Putin. I th- you know, you may, you, you may well be right, Mike. You may well be right. Thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Tony in Utica, Michigan. Hey, Tony, what's up? Okay, Tom, I think if I was right in hearing you yesterday, you said that it's a general rule that countries don't try to eliminate the leaders of foreign enemy countries. Is, is that correct? And at least countries that have some level of parity. I mean, you know, yes, we assassinated Saddam Hussein. We assassinated uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, but historically, no, we didn't. Okay. Uh, you know, the CIA was responsible for killing Patrice Lumumba. Sure. Of the Belgian. But it was done on the, it was done on the QT. It was done in secret. And that didn't come out for years. Yes. And also the CIA was responsible for trying to kill Fidel Castro. Right. And again, that didn't come out for years. So there's a whole different thing between trying to assassinate a foreign leader quietly and doing it proudly with a Hellfire missile, you know, bragging about it. And that that was the point that I was making. And, and, uh, you know, yeah, I I think every American official lives with the possibility of being the victim of an assassination attempt or some other, you know, uh, honeypot trap or whatever from a hostile foreign government. But, you know, most of them don't think that a missile is going to come flying out of the sky at them. And that was my point, that this was a this is a big change from from normal policy. Tony, thank you for the call. Chuck in uh, Beverly Shores, Indiana. Hey, Chuck, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, just to comment on uh, Trump's desire for war, I think um, he does want a, a war with Iran such that he thinks he can just send missiles in there and bomb them into submission. And I was wondering, if it gets that far, where do you think China and Russia are going to come down on this issue? And Well, that's the World War I scenario, get, Chuck. Yeah. That, that's yeah, I mean, literally the World War I scenario. I mean, you know, the, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand led directly to, I don't recall the, the order of them. It's been 40 years since I, since I you know, took a history class and studied World War I. But, you know, basically, as I recall, it was Serbia and some other country. And, you know, they got in a fight with each other. And then they, they reached out to the allies that they had and said, well, you know, we have a mutual defense treaty. I'm under attack. You're supposed to help me. And those countries jumped in. And then those countries had, a, had mutual defense treaties with larger countries. And pretty soon the whole world is in a war. And that, that was the World War I scenario. And that's what concerns me with what Trump is doing. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is that I believe Iran does have a strategy, and that would be to set ablaze all the oil fields in the Middle East. And then when Trump's supporters have to pay six, seven dollars a gallon, I don't know, maybe they'll think twice.
Yeah, if all of all oil fields in the Middle East went went ablaze, it'd be more like twenty or thirty dollars a gallon. But uh, point taken. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Chris in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Chris, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. You know, your lips to God's ears that Trump is out of office soon, but I doubt it. But um, when it comes to the uh, almighty petrodollar, this country will never, ever, ever admit to global warming. For one thing, the real. But we did when Obama was president. <laughs> yeah, we well, led the Paris Accords. But we're not there anymore, are we now? Hey, you're right. We have to do it just like you flip a switch, you know, it's going to be, you know, progression versus revengeism every single time. Yeah. But the real reason I called is the fact that regarding the cowardly murder of General Soleimani, which these people embrace on both sides, I mean, the Democrats are like, you know, we should have been told first. And you know Chuck Schumer would have just said, yeah, sure, go ahead. I don't That's think so. Deal. I hope you're right. But I, I, he's my senator and I don't trust him. And he's made enough noise about Iran over the years not to trust him. But the, the point being is that the world did not begin on December 27th with the attack of the embassy. You know, the attack on the embassy was a response to the attack on a, an oil facility in Iraq called K-1 right. that was hit by the militia. And the reason why the militia has been sending out rockets for months was because back in April, we gave permission for the Israelis to work with our logistics in uh, Syria-Iraq border to use uh, flights of drones to go out and strike the militias at will. And Netanyahu finally came around and admitted it. I've yet to hear anyone in the mainstream media. Huh. I'll have to look for that story. If, you can, if you've got a link to that or anything about it, please, uh, Chris, tweet it to me, because that's something I'm, I was unfamiliar with. Thank you very much for the information. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, Rick in Houston, listening on SiriusXM, says you disagree with me, Rick. Uh, what About what? Yeah, you know, your viewers are saying Trump's incompetent. The economy's the best it's been in a, in a decade. Yeah. And hey, people Give, give me a $3 trillion dollar credit card, and no, I can no, show no, you no, what no, it no, looks no. like to live large, can too. I, can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish? You, I, know you, you, I know you want to push your agenda. And I know what the Democrats want is a socialist country, which is one step below communism. And people need to realize what it is. This propaganda that y'all push, Trump is very competent. He's trying to deal with China on the trade barrier that should have been done decades ago. Our politicians have sold this country out. Yeah, Rick, with regard to China and trade, I agree with you saying that this attack was needed. No, you have all no, you've got, Rick, this guy is playing with fire. This guy is incompetent. He doesn't understand the difference between tactics and strategy. You're absolutely right. One of the reasons why he's president in, in you know, aside from, you know, Russian meddling is, and, and apparently UAE and Saudi meddling as well, is because he said he was going to bring jobs back from Asia. I mean, this was the biggest mistake the Democrats ever made. Was, and, and most of the Democrats didn't go along with it. Most of the Democrats have always opposed NAFTA and all these other trade deals. Bill Clinton signed it, but it was negotiated by Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. And both Reagan and Bush said, oh, yeah, this is a great thing. Let's do this. And Trump came along and said, no, it's stupid. And he was right. It was stupid. The problem is that if you want to change our trade policy and actually bring factories back home, what you have to do, and Trump yesterday or two days ago, I got an email from him saying, I brought 10,000 factories home. So I checked on Snopes. 
9,500 of them have fewer than three employees. They're not actually factories. They're companies that have incorporated and checked the box saying that they are a manufacturing organization. So, no, it hasn't happened. And the reason why is because if you actually want to bring manufacturing home, you have to change the tariff structure at the level of Congress. I'm not going to build a factory. I'm not going to go out and borrow $500 million and build a factory to manufacture something in the United States that's being made in China right now unless I know that the tariff on the Chinese goods are going to last longer than one presidential term. Trump is doing this by executive order. Executive orders expire at the, functionally at the end of his term. That's the stupid way to do it. Trump has been incompetent at everything he has done. The reason the economy is rip-roaring right now, and, and by the way, for the bottom 70% of Americans, it's not rip-roaring. People are making less money than they were making in the 1960s. It has been flat for decades because of Reaganomics. But for the top, you know, particularly the top 10%, they're doing great. The stock market is up because the Fed has lowered interest rates. It's that simple. And, and Trump had nothing to do with that. Uh, you could say he, he threatened Jay Powell. Sure. The, the exact same thing happened during the Roaring Twenties. And look what it, where it got us. It got us to 1929. So, you know, be careful what you're rubbing your hands about. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolutionary Love by Michael Lerner, a political manifesto to heal and transform the world. This is from the introduction. We earthlings need to build a fundamental change of consciousness into ourselves and in every part of our national and global society in order to achieve the economic and political changes necessary to prevent the destruction of the life support system of Earth, in order to end global and domestic poverty and wealth inequality, to defeat racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of xenophobia, to protect human rights, to achieve social, economic, and environmental justice, and to achieve lasting global peace. This new consciousness is possible and can emerge through embracing revolutionary love, the struggle for a caring society and a new bottom line in all our economic, political, legal, educational, and cultural institutions. This manifesto is written to show you how this can happen and how you can help make it possible. Liberal and progressive movements need to move beyond a focus on economic entitlements and political rights to embrace a new discourse of love, kindness, generosity, and awe. These are not some new agey smile and be nice formula or let's get into self-transformation before we change society kind of thinking. I'm calling for both our American and global societies to embrace a new bottom line so that every economic, political, societal, and cultural institution is considered efficient, rational, and or productive, not according to the old bottom line of how much these institutions maximize money, power, or ego, but rather how much they maximize love and generosity, kindness and forgiveness, ethical and environmentally sustainable behavior, social and economic justice. This new bottom line seeks to enhance our capacity to transcend a narrow utilitarian or instrumental way of viewing human beings and nature so that we respond to other people as embodiments of the sacred instead of thinking of them primarily in terms of how much they can serve our interests and also so that we can respond to nature not solely as a resource for human needs, but rather through awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the beauty and grandeur of this universe. I call this new consciousness revolutionary love, and its goal is to create the caring society, caring for each other, 
and caring for the earth. The vehicle to create this new consciousness, we will call the Love and Justice Movement, and eventually the Love and Justice Party. The revolutionary possibility of love is the kind of love that breaks through those distortions of consciousness that make it difficult to implement a national environmental policy or to end the many forms of oppression that permeate our world. To really embrace revolutionary love requires us to develop a strategy way beyond anything currently being given serious attention in the media, the political parties, and even many of the social change movements. And it requires us to move beyond what seems realistic in terms of the contemporary frame of discourse. Yet there is no alternative if we're to solve the environmental crisis and prevent our society in the coming decades from moving further and further into reactionary nationalism and repression of our own humanity. We need a global mobilization of billions of people to solve the problem. And this manifesto outlines the first steps to making possible such a mobilization. To understand the urgency, let's consider our current environmental crisis. In 1992, thousands of scientists issued a collective statement warning of the impending dangers to the life support system of planet Earth. 25 years later, in December 2017, 15,364 scientists from 184 countries signed a new statement that reads, in part, since 1992, with the exception of stabilizing the stratospheric ozone layer, humanity has failed to make sufficient progress in generally solving these unforeseen environmental changes. And alarmingly, most of them are getting far worse. Especially troubling is the current trajectory of potentially catastrophic climate change due to rising greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels and agricultural production, particularly from farming ruminants for meat consumption. Moreover, we have unleashed a mass extinction event, the sixth in roughly 540 million years, wherein many current life forms could be annihilated or at least committed to extinction by the end of this century. Humanity is now being given a second notice. We are jeopardizing our future by not reining in our intense but geologically and demographically uneven material consumption and by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a planetary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. By failing to adequately limit population growth, reassess the role of an economy rooted in growth, reduce greenhouse gases, incentivize renewable energy, protect habitat, restore ecosystems, curb pollution, halt defaunation, and constrain invasive alien species. Humanity is not taking the urgent steps needed to safeguard our imperiled biosphere. End of quote from the scientists. The book is Revolutionary Love by Rabbi Michael Lerner. John in El Prado, New Mexico. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, Tom. If John Bolton is so ready to testify in front of the Senate, why doesn't Nancy Pelosi subpoena him and uh, have that, him testify in front of the House? That will almost certainly happen, John. I, only it won't be Nancy Pelosi. It'll probably be Adam Schiff in the Intelligence Committee. Or it could be Jerry Nadler with the Judiciary. There's a couple of different committees who would have overlapping jurisdiction here. But I suspect that that's going to happen, and it's going to happen in the next week or so. I'd be very surprised yeah. if it doesn't. And just to add to this, 
I believe that the reason why John Bolton wants to testify, and this would speak to why he would also testify to the House instead of the Senate, is that he's writing a tell-all book about his time in the White House. And when you write a tell-all book, you've got to have it vetted by the agency whose secrets you're telling. And so there's going to be a bunch of stuff about his time in the White House that Trump doesn't want him talking about in his book. And so the White House will never vet his book. But if he can say these things in open session in the congressional record, the congressional record is public domain. It's not it's no longer classified and it's not copyrighted. And so he will be able then to take that content and say, I don't have to have my book vetted by the White House. I don't have to have Trump's permission to tell these stories because I already told Congress. I did it under subpoena. I was forced to do it. Uh, and then he can get his million-dollar advance or whatever it is. John, thanks a lot for the call. But, you know, all that said, I still think we need to hear from John Bolton because apparently he was one of the few people who, as much as crazy as he is, you know, wanting to bomb Iran and everything else, he was one of the few people who thought it was a stupid idea to blackmail a foreign government in order to smear Joe Biden. Incredible stuff. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it, and tell your friends how to find progressive media. Turn them on to our program and others. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.